This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara ong This is Abe Goldberg, Director of JMU Civic and Faculty Member in the Department of Political Science here at James Madison University. And I'm Sarah Akers, the Woodson Martin Democracy Fellow here at JMU Civic. We have a very special guest joining us today. Tamira White is a research and project assistant in the Africa Growth Initiative at Brookings Institution. Thank you so much for joining us, Tamira. Um, we actually want to start by asking you um, about the state of, of politics um, in Africa. Uh, recently, the Freedom House issued its 2021 report um, and rated only eight countries in sub-Saharan Africa as free. What factors do you think have contributed to an overall democratic decline in Africa? Um, first, before I answer any questions, I want to say that my thoughts are my own and not representative of the Brookings Institution. And I think it's important to note that democracy has retreated globally and not just in Africa. And we kind of can see the the same trends, um, maybe not as extreme, but still the same trends, um, especially recently since the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, but specifically during the pandemic, what we have seen is African citizens, especially youth, stand up for their rights and demand their freedoms from their countries. Um, in countries such as Nigeria, Tunisia, Senegal, Cameroon, and South Africa, um, we have seen an increase of mass demonstrations. And again, as I said, just citizens demanding that their countries put their needs first and listen to what they have to say. Um, and the armed conflict location and event data project actually did a um, project on this and it showed that mass demonstrations has increased more than sevenfold in the past decade. Um, but to your point of overall politics, I think that citizen dis- dissatisfaction levels have incre- has increased and likely will continue to decrease as countries struggle to manage COVID and start thinking about what COVID recovery look- will look like. Um, I think the political scene in Africa has not necessarily really changed. I think that due to the increase of mass mobilization and just global awareness and the media really taking a hold on what's going on, um, I think with implementation of social media and social media activism, um, people outside of Africa now have the opportunity to be more knowledgeable and be more aware of what's going on. But generally, there is a disconnect between the demands of the citizens and the implementation of governments, which creates this collision. And I think that the only way to really get past this is to improve quality of leadership and I think that would be a major determinant on how uh, democracy in Africa or politics in Africa moves forward. We need, they need, we need more quality leadership. Um, and the, this, I guess you can kind of relate it to the idea of good governance, right? Um, how do you promote good governance? How do you maintain it in a given place, though you have 
challenges such as the pandemic. Um, but also the report also showed that a lot of countries that um, were not free before have moved to the the partly free category. And I think that's also something that we need to look at and kind of what policy changes did these countries make and what recommendations can um, these not free countries or yeah, not free countries that are still on the list make to move forward. Um, but I think because of COVID, um, the acceleration of the, the democracy decline in Africa has um, kind of taken a toll on the politics um, in general with like lockdown restrictions and things. It kind of made it more, uh, I don't want to say easier, but it kind of did, right? It made it easier for uh, things such as election postponing and overall like tampering and voting sites are prohibiting of people from voting, it kind of made it easy for all these countries who had elections during this this crisis. So you've definitely touched on how the COVID-19 pandemic um, has contributed to political, social, economic changes in Africa. But I also wonder how has climate change contributed to these changes as well? Yes, so climate change and COVID-19, both of them are really exacerbators of existing inequalities um, in Africa. And what we see is countries with high levels of fragility, even before COVID-19 or before, you know, the world started being super concerned with climate change. These countries, you know, they already had weak institutions and limited capacity to respond to challenges. So when you add a pandemic and when you add the effects of climate change, it makes it, it further strains a government's capacity um, to govern effectively and legitimately. So essentially both of them kind of increase tensions and on, and on the systems that are already weak. So for example, with climate change, I think about the farmer herder conflicts that have been happening. Um, there are some in northern Nigeria, you know, some in also the Sahel region. So with, you know, the I the the climate change reports that have coming out, we just had COP, um, and the general consensus is if we don't do anything, these things are going to get worse, right? So with rain variability and the likelihood of increasing drought and drought-prone areas and increasing um, natural disasters and more extreme natural disasters, when resources are already scarce and limited and you add these other factors on top of that, it makes your citizens or, you know, it makes people have to scramble for resource, resources even more. So with the farmer herder conflict, I I think that, you know, climate change, if we don't take action um, and rain variability and drought continues to be a prominent thing, um, conflicts like these will become worse and essentially long lasting, right? Because if you continue to have to fight for resources. You just have to continue to fight for resources. If your 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 government has 
a weak capacity to be able to implement um, climate resistant policies or implement policies that help slow down the effects of climate change. I mean, we saw with COP that the African negotiators are asking for financing so that they can take care of their citizens um, because countries simply do not have the extra fiscal space to be able to do this by themselves. So like if drought increases um, and with farmers and herders needing to look for sources of waters, I feel like there is no choice but to encroach on other people's land or encroach on other people's grazing spaces because you're all looking for the same resource that is scarce. I want to ask specifically about Eswatini, Africa's last absolute monarchy. Can you speak to the pro-democracy protests currently happening within that nation? Sure. So these protests that are happening now started back around May. Um, there were reports of a law student that died uh, mysteriously in police custody, and allegedly the student's body was found in a field. Um, after news reports of this came out, um, you saw a lot of young activists in the in the country take to the streets and kind of demand justice for this individual. Um, but the country itself historically have has been a fan of repression in a sense. So they have um, a Sedition and Subversive Activities Act, which has been used to target human rights activists um, and those calling for democratic reforms. Um, there's a Suppression of Terrorism Act. I think that was implemented in 2018, which was amended again in 2017. And on top of all of this, political parties were banned in 1973. So what we see happening, I think, has been brewing a long time. Um, and as mass movements on the African continent have increased in general, it makes sense that, you know, the youth are taking to the streets and kind of demanding um, justice and holding the kingdom accountable for the acts of uh, police, et cetera, et cetera. So on top of this, the country itself has not been doing well financially. Um, there's been reports of running out of health care and fuel, which fuel is a major um, determinant of the economy because they're a landlocked country, so they don't really, um, they can't fish, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's been a lot of conversations about corruption and general waste of materials. Um, there was some articles a while back about the king and his lavish spending and all of his wives. Um, and Afrobarometer did a survey um, asking about government, general government performance. And majority of the citizens in Eswatini believe that the government is performing poorly on key economic issues. Um and the king has been controversial for a while now. Um, and many Africa experts have criticized him for his extravagant lifestyle. So I think that the injustice on top of the pre-existing frustrating um, frustrations with the current king um, just created a scenario where 
the people are fed up and the youth want a new Africa. I think that's what also it, it comes down to. We see that all over the youth have really been rising to the occasion and they they want something different. And I think that while it is good that they are out there protesting and standing up for their rights, there are some major concerns about their safety. But essentially what we see is a kingdom or a country um, that is unable to successfully provide for its citizens and the citizens just want more. Tamara, I wonder if you can talk about how the monarchy has been responding to pro-democracy protesters and and what the situation is for them right now. So, um, due to the repression acts, um, generally protesters and democracy enthusiasts are at risk. There's no way around that. Um, I know at the initial start of the protest, a dust to dawn curfew was imposed. Um, of course, the youth took to the streets anyway. Um, currently, protests have been banned and cities and town municipals have been told to stop issuing permits to hold protests in the country. Um, there was a report from Amnesty International in October that said at least 80 people have been killed by security forces since May, and more than 1,000 have been arrested, including two mem- members of parliament that are currently still in jail. Um, there's been reports of police invading hospitals and shooting patients and nurses, um, the use of tear gas, and just the overall trying to what they call get the protests under control, but in a very aggressive, um, kind of repressive way. I know there has been talks about uh, a dialogue happening. Um, the king stated that he was ready to have a dialogue or wanted to have a dialogue. But I think because there is a lack of trust between the king and his people, there are say subjects, um, that a dialogue kind of may not be the the best route to go at this moment with heightened emotion. So for those of us, you know, on the outside, um, what what can people do to support pro-democracy efforts? Or is it best to just let let the situation play out? I think that... I think it's a split, right? Majority of people are like, yes, let's just let it play out. We don't need any um, interference from the international community, et cetera, et cetera. And I think this is a hard question to answer, especially because who are the main contributors from the international community, right? The Western world, U.S., Europe, and the U.S. themselves has not had the, the the best display of democracy. So it comes to discussions come to, okay, well, how how would the United States tell us what to do or be for democracy when they don't have a control on their own democracy? So I think that that's a, that's a really tough question. I think that if you the key would be finding um, just organizations that are supporting the protesters, um, maybe some that 
are providing, you know, like bail money, are providing legal services, um, providing water, et cetera, et cetera. Finding those on the ground people and kind of supporting them. Um, as far as the international community, I do think that there needs to be something done, but whatever is done, it needs to be done in the the right way. My fear is a lot of times is that a lot of responses to these type of issues are militant and adding more repression in a repressive situation can only heighten frustrations. So I am I am not an expert on how to revive democracy, but I think that there needs to be an overall push for accountability and holding officials accountable for all countries. And that would be a good start in kind of, I guess, saving democracy's name in a sense. So in a more regional sense, what role do you think that the Southern African Development Community and other regional partners and institutions play in supporting pro-democracy efforts in Eswatini? I think, again, accountability um, and starting at targeting, you know, human rights abuses. So even though Eswatini is a, a kingdom, they still have a constitution. So holding them accountable and say, hey, you're violating your own constitution by doing this, this, and this. It's a little bit tricky because there are repressive uh, acts in their constitution. So how how can you stop repression in a country where repression is legal? You know, so I think that is a major um, a major hindrance in moving forward. But also the Southern Africa development community, um, again, they need to come together and have a stance on the situation that's that's going on. Um, although they have not, they do not have the best track record at holding member states accountable and have ignored violations before. I think that strengthening institutions such as this. Um, maybe the African Court on Human and People's Rights and making sure that these institutions can tackle and hold accountable um, repressive regimes um, and be people first, citizens first, making sure that all citizens are granted their rights um, that they have. You know, like just make sure that countries are following international treaties, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a hard question as well. I feel like a lot of these institutions don't necessarily always have the the capability to be able to um, go into countries or have have a clear and cut way to reduce repression and support um, protesters, et cetera. I mean, we saw in Nigeria, um, the youth did the same thing with the the NSARS movement and 
they were kind of out there by themselves. They got global media attention, of course. They got social media attention, of course. But from my view and my understanding, most of the help came from individuals, individuals in diaspora and other youths in Africa. So I think there really needs to be an improvement on institutions and that holding these governments accountable, no matter what, is the start to making sure that situations like this don't continue to repeat themselves. Tamira White, thank you so much for outlining for us and our listeners a very complicated situation, both in terms of what's happening on the ground in Africa, as well as what we can do here uh, to support pro-democracy everywhere. We do have a final question for you that we ask of all guests on Democracy Matters, which is this. What would you do to strengthen democracy? Again, another hard question. (laughs) I think we can strengthen democracy by focusing on good governance. So leaders have to govern with the interests of their citizens at heart. And I don't know if there is a perfect example of this anywhere in the world at this at this point in time. But globally, we need to figure out ways to stop failing at providing security for the lives and properties of citizens and at promoting rule of law. And this includes addressing inequalities and lack of minority rights. This includes, again, holding government officials accountable and, if need be, create um, holding them accountable and, if need be, punishing them when they are not doing the right thing. Um, And I think we need to listen to what these protesters want, right? So we need to think about ways to come to an agreement where both parties are happy. And I just, I ultimately feel that once you know, good governance can be restored. And once governments can start providing for their citizens as they're supposed to, um, we will see a shift in democracy and a more willing, a more cooperative, I guess, um, relationship between citizens and institutions. Hi, my name is Lauren Elaine, and I am the Assistant Director of the Furious Flower Poetry Center here at James Madison University. I'm also a poet, and um, my contribution today is a poem. This poem I wrote in response to the 2016 election. I've been working on a series of poems in the voice of Gretel, who is a fairy tale character, um, but mostly I've been thinking about what stories and fairy tales and stories of all kinds really can do to help us think through our current world and current situation, uh, because that's what they're made for, right? For helping us understand and, and, and contemplate our society. And it turns out that our young heroine, Gretel, had some words for the American public. Gretel advises America. The story is old. There is safety then danger, then the illusory ending. There is a person who believes everyone is for the taking,
who will make food of you and assume you will comply with no resistance. This is always the mistake. The trick is old. There is no great again, no return to what was for anyone, not the father longing for an unburdened life, not the stepmother clambering toward the dream of ever after she'd polished beneath her lids for a lifetime, not for the children who must grow away from innocence one way or another. The moral is this, you already know the spells for survival, your mind's swift magic, the miracle of your hands, love and all its attendant fire. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin, JMU Civics Communications Specialist. Randy Bednickus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does this indication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University on our website at j.mu civic. Until next time.